This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A fierce blizzard swept across the U.S. Midwest, ripping the roof off a schoolhouse. Minnie and her students trudged through the snow and wind in an attempt to reach a nearby farmhouse. Did they make it? This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called The Children's Blizzard. The blizzard ripped the roof off a schoolhouse. What happened? Just a note before starting, Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. So let me start this episode by asking you a question. Are you a summer person or a winter person? Many people have a preference for the heat or for the cold. And for me, my weakness is definitely the cold. I can endure heat and high humidity, but can never seem to put on enough layers to feel comfortable in the winter. Now, coming from Australia, I have never seen snow in my life, although that's not quite right, because I was born in Croatia, and I have photos of myself in the snow at the age of about three. But then we migrated to Australia, and since then, my exposure to snow has been zilch. I live on the east coast of Australia, not far north from Sydney. The climate is subtropical making warm, humid summers, but also very mild winters. The winter daytime temperature averages about 20 degrees Celsius, or that's 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And the nighttime temperature is around 10 degrees Celsius, although it does drop lower sometimes, but I have never experienced below freezing. So when I see what winters are like in Northern Europe and Canada, I just freak out. I really do not like the cold. Yes, and I can hear some of you laughing because 20 degrees Celsius is not cold, but for me it is. When it comes to storms, the areas to the north of Australia often experience cyclones. And some of these have been devastating, but from what I have seen in the U.S., The weather there is much more extreme. Hurricanes, tornadoes, blizzards. And just to give you an idea, here in Australia in the last 15 years, there were four major cyclones with only three deaths. So while they can cause much damage, they don't kill people on a mass scale. The story today will take us back about 130 years ago to the year 1888. That year was synonymous with a number of noteworthy events. It was when Jack the Ripper was terrorising London. It was also the year that Vincent van Gogh cut off his ear. The first Kodak camera was produced and the first issue of the National Geographic magazine was published. But it was also the year that the US experienced its worst blizzard in recorded history at that time, and this episode today tells that story. The blizzard at the centre of today's story hit the Midwest region of the US. 
The topography of this central area generally consists of a landscape of low, flat, fertile plains and prairies, ideal for farming and growing crops. To set the context for this story, it's necessary to look back at what was happening in the US in the 1800s. By the 1850s, cities on the east and west coasts were flourishing, but this was not the case in the interior of the country, which was still frontier land. In order to attract more settlers and spur economic growth, the government introduced the Homestead Act of 1862. This act would provide millions of acres of land to settlers for free and was available to all US citizens, including women, African Americans, freed slaves, and immigrants who had either already become citizens or were in the process of becoming citizens. People could apply for up to 160 acres of land, with the only requirement being that they reside on the land for five years, after which they would receive the title to the land. The scheme was also promoted outside of the US, where brochures promised large expanses of fertile land and favourable weather. One such brochure stated, Indeed, it may be justly claimed as one of the most beautiful climates in the world and one best adapted to the enjoyment of a long and vigorous life. Great prairies stretching out as far as one could see which never a stone to gather up, a tree to cut down, or a stump to grub out. The soil so black and rich that you had only to tickle it with a plough and it would laugh with a beautiful harvest. So this promise of free land was an offer that many could not refuse, and so immigrants flocked to the US, particularly from Scandinavia and other European countries. Even whole communities such as the Swiss-German Mennonites, emigrated together. The government transported the new arrivals to the Midwest states, and each family then chose a piece of land and registered their claim, working extremely hard year after year to make a success of the opportunity that they had been given. It was tough, but what they hadn't been warned about in the brochures was the swarm of grasshoppers, which would destroy entire crops, or the extremes of weather on the prairies, scorching fires, vicious winds, snow and sleet, drought, flash floods, dust storms, bitter cold, and unrelenting winter blizzards. Instead, the propaganda described it as a Garden of Eden, and although many persevered, it had been estimated that some 60% of new arrivals gave up and returned to where they had come from. But for those that did stay on, they built their homes from whatever was available in their area. But for people on the predominantly flat plains of the Midwest, there were few trees, and so they built what were called sod houses, using earth and roots. They cut soil into long, narrow strips, and then chopped them into bricks. These bricks were then stacked to make the walls. Then branches, twigs and hay were used to make the roofs, which were then covered with another layer of sod. The communities toiled very hard, including their own children, 
when they were old enough. They did manage to go to school, but only after the harvest was done. Simple one-room schoolhouses were set up, with children of all ages being taught together, and by teachers who were often not much older than their students. Schoolhouses at that time varied depending on where they were located. In the more populated areas, they were sturdy wooden buildings. However, in the more remote areas with fewer trees, the schoolhouses were made of sod, which didn't offer as much protection as the wooden structures. They were poorly insulated and hard to heat. The schoolrooms were heated with iron stoves, which burned coal, wood, or hay. The winter of 1887 and 88 certainly made its presence felt, with colder temperatures and more rain and snow than usual. People were forced to spend days and weeks holed up in their homesteads. Many schools were closed. But a reprieve finally arrived on the day of January the 12th. People awoke to a surprisingly warm and sunny day which brightened spirits after days of confinement. Here are some accounts of that day. That morning was the most beautiful morning I had ever seen. Sun shone bright. It had snowed the night before. The snowflakes laid loosely on drifts, just like loose feathers. And as I remember, it seemed the sun shining on the snow caused a golden reflection on the snow. Another said, the air was like that of an April morning, with just a breath of breeze coming out of the southwest. I happened to be the first one of our family to go out. I quickly returned inside and called out so all could hear me. Oh, come folks and see what a beautiful morning it is. It is 32 above. We're going to have a January thaw. Cousin Hugh and myself took a shovel and a pan of chicken feed to the barn expecting to soon dig our way into the sod barn of which only the roof poles were visible above the great snowdrifts that almost filled the deep ravine. So people were overjoyed to finally be able to go outdoors and get various chores done, collecting firewood, tending to their animals, going to town to replenish supplies and children were finally able to go back to school. As one schoolgirl recalled, My brothers wore little homemade denim jackets, no scarves, mittens or overshoes, for it promised to be a fine winter's day. Long before I reached school, I was carrying my cape in my hand. However, some were dubious about the sudden change in the weather. It had increased by 22 degrees Celsius since the previous day. Some of the old-timers saw the dramatic change as somehow just not right. While many parents allowed their children to go to school, one father decided to keep his children home, saying, I feel there is something in the air. However, the idyllic conditions were not to last. As the saying goes, it was just the calm before the storm. One boy had been snowballing with his brother, and described what he saw. We could see the blizzard coming across Spirit Lake. It was just as still as could be. We saw it cut off the trees like it was a white roll coming. It hit with a 60 mile per hour wind. 
It had snowed the night before about two or three inches. It just sucked up that snow into the air and nearly smothered you. The Nebraska State Journal newspaper wrote the following. At three o'clock came the most decided weather change that has ever been noted in Nebraska. The snow was falling in a white cloud with hardly a breath of air to move the flakes from the places where they found lodgment. Suddenly it grew darker and with a rush the north wind came down upon the startled city. It lifted the snow from the streets, picked it from the roofs of buildings and the branches of trees and hurled it here and there in the most reckless fashion. Within four minutes after the first rush of air from the north was felt, it was impossible to see even the outlines of buildings across the street. The change from a steady, quiet snowstorm to a howling blizzard was practically instantaneous. The temperature fell about 20 degrees in a few hours. So on that beautiful morning, people went about their business being totally oblivious to the fact that an Arctic cold front was sweeping through Canada and on its way down to the Midwest states of the US. It would unleash a blizzard which would be unprecedented in recorded history and claim the lives of 235 people, of which 213 were children, although some estimates put the death toll at 500. The blizzard would be coined the children's blizzard or the school children's blizzard due to the large number of students who perished. It had hit many areas where children had just been dismissed from school and therefore they became victims of the storm's fury as they tried to make their way home. Some children were not found for days or weeks until the warmer weather arrived and thawed out the snow. The 1888 blizzard was characterised as a ground blizzard, which meant that it didn't produce a lot of snow, but the snow on the ground created whiteout conditions. Survivors recalled that visibility was less than a metre. You could hardly see your hand before you or draw your breath, and that with the intense cold roaring wind and darkness, it would appall the stoutest heart. Blizzards occur more often on the north plains of the central US, with this area receiving the nickname of Blizzard Alley. A study pinpointed that the state of North Dakota as recording the most blizzards, partly due to the flat terrain with few trees, which means that strong, cold winds have little to slow them down. In the aftermath of the storm, many stories emerged from those caught up in its rage. Some lived to tell their stories, while sadly, as we have seen, many didn't. And while the newspapers of the day featured these stories, there was one particular story from the state of Nebraska which went on to capture national headlines. It was the story of a teacher named Minnie Freeman. This is her story. It was in the year 1868 that a baby girl was born in Pennsylvania. Her name was Minnie May Freeman. When she was three years old, her family moved to Nebraska, just one of the central U.S. states which is found in the heart of the so-called Tornado Alley, an area where tornadoes are most frequent. 
So her childhood was characterised by hot summers, but also severe Arctic-like winters. Then when Minnie was 19, she started a job as a schoolteacher at a rural Nebraska school. Her class consisted of 13 students of all ages, and the schoolhouse was constructed with sod. On that unseasonally warm day of January the 12th, her school had been reopened, and the children were overjoyed to be seeing their classmates again. They merrily played outside, but were totally unaware of what was heading their way. Minnie was outside with the children, but when she looked towards the north, she saw a blue stripe on the horizon. She knew this meant that a severe storm may be coming. These blue northers, as they were called, were storms that hit the Great Plains states. She knew they came without warning and often struck with hurricane force, with the temperature plummeting below zero very quickly. So when Minnie saw the telltale signs of an approaching storm, she hurried the children inside the schoolhouse. Minnie then had to decide what to do. Should she keep the children inside the schoolhouse and wait out the storm? Maybe the parents would also see the storm approaching and decide to come and collect their children. They had enough coal to keep the stove going, but there was no food. So what happened if the storm continued day after day? As it had been a warm day, the children also didn't have the warm clothing needed for a prolonged confinement. Now, instead of me telling you what happened, listen here to an article which appeared in a local newspaper called the Omaha Daily Bee. This account was published six days after the storm. A heroine of the storm. Not many miles from the town of Ord is situated the schoolhouse of Mira Valley School District. This house is a small frame structure and the nearest dwelling is at least one half mile distance. Thursday morning, January 12, there was little evidence of the coming of the terrible storm, which played such havoc in all portions of the country. But when the blizzard came, it broke with equal fury in the neighbourhood of Ord. In the little schoolhouse of Mirror Valley District, Miss Minnie Freeman, the teacher, yet in her teens, was endeavouring to allay the fears of 13 pupils between the ages of 6 and 15 years. The task was no light one, and the children were wrought up to the highest pitch of excitement by the fury of the storm. In the midst of the teacher's assurance that all would be well, a terrible gust of wind struck the building. The windows rattled, the house shook, and the door of the structure was torn from its hinges. It was then the young teacher realised the necessity of preparing for emergencies. With an exhibition of rare judgement, she gathered her little brood together and, securing a coil of strong, heavy twine, began with the largest ones and tied the children together by the arms and bodies, three abreast. This completed, she huddled her charges around the stove and awaited the pleasure of the Storm King. Its furious work came sooner than expected. A terrible gale, sweeping everything before it, struck the building and carried away, in the twinkling of an eye, the entire roof of the structure. 
leaving the frightened little ones exposed to the elements. The time for prompt action had arrived, but the plucky teacher was equal to the emergency. Taking the youngest and frailest of her charge in her arms, she tied the remaining end of the twine around her own body, and with all the words of encouragement she could muster, the courageous teacher started with her team of frightened little ones out into the fury of the storm. Those who have braved the terrors of a Nebraska blizzard need not be told that it required courage to enable a young girl to breast those furies. Having in her keeping the lives of 13 little ones and the happiness of 13 homes. Those who felt and suffered from the effects of Thursday's storm need not be told that the act of that young girl was one from which strong men themselves might quail. Selecting her way carefully following the course of the storm, the brave girl led her little charges through snowdrifts and blinding blizzard, now cautioning them about their steps now encouraging them to cheerfulness and all the way, herself bearing an additional burden of somebody's darling, urging them into renewed efforts. And thus, it was that after a wearisome journey of three quarters of a mile, through all the fury a storm could muster, the little band reached the threshold of a farmhouse, which is needless to say they received a hearty welcome. At the very house where they found shelter, one of the children made its home, and if the eyes of a loving mother filled with tears as she pressed her little one to her heart, they were not dried when she gave to the brave young teacher an embrace in which was embodied all the love and gratitude within a mother's heart. It is safe to say that the subsequent reception of Miss Freeman in all the homes whose little ones she had rescued, perhaps from death, was equally as warm as she accorded in the first instance. Miss Minnie Freeman is a young lady only 19 years of age and is teaching her first year of school in the Mirror Valley District. Her action of Thursday has endeared her stronger than words can portray to those whose little ones she cared for so well, and the display of rare courage and judgment entitles her to the esteem of all who admire heroism with a true ring. So the farmhouse that they had made it to was actually where Minnie boarded herself. So as she knew the path well and had travelled it each day to and from school, perhaps because she was so familiar with the path that it was this that ultimately enabled them to reach the farmhouse safely. And this predicament that Minnie and her students faced also happened to countless other schoolhouses in the path of the storm. Some teachers decided to stay and ride out the storm, hoping to be rescued, but after days of waiting, it had come too late, with everyone freezing to death. Some other teachers, who decided to evacuate, as many had, unfortunately lost their bearings and succumbed to the freezing conditions. Other school teachers decided to dismiss their classes allowing the children to find their own way home. Some were able to burrow into the snow for shelter or in haystacks. Some survived, but many did not. So, as you can imagine, Minnie became a local hero, 
but also somewhat of a national folk hero as well. She was given a gold medal by the State Education Board and a wax bust was made of her, which was exhibited around the country. Her bravery was immortalised in a song called Thirteen Was Saved, Nebraska's Fearless Maid. But many were surprised by all of the fuss, saying that she did nothing more than fulfilling her responsibilities as a teacher. She even received countless letters from men with marriage proposals. So while many was being applauded as a heroine, there was also much discussion about what had caused the very sudden change in weather conditions, which inflicted such a high death toll. It goes without saying that today we have very sophisticated weather forecasting technology, but back in the 1800s, you can imagine that forecasting was very primitive. It was about 20 years before the blizzard hit that a national weather reporting agency was established, run by the U.S. Army Signal Service Corps and was based in Washington, D.C. While a lot of finger-pointing occurred after the storm, an investigation into the disaster determined that it had been the result of bad luck and poor timing as so many children were killed after leaving school and trying to make it home. While I did find a very detailed meteorological explanation of how the blizzard developed so quickly, to put it in simple terms, it was precipitated by the collision of an intense Arctic cold front with warm, moisture-laden air from the Gulf of Mexico. It travelled down from Canada in the early hours of the 12th of January, with different states being impacted as it moved further south, and eventually hit Nebraska in the afternoon where Minnie and her students were. The weather conditions were recorded at army depots and railroad depots across the country, and all of this information was then collected in Washington, D.C. It was then mapped out and telegraphed back to train stations, which would raise warning flags. But this was useless for people out on homesteads. Similarly, warnings were printed in newspapers, but again, this information didn't reach people on isolated properties. And even if some did receive the warnings, by the time the information was received, the weather had already blown through and it was far too late. Now, can you believe this, that just two months later, after that blizzard, an even deadlier blizzard struck, which has come to be known as the worst in US history. It is called the Great Blizzard of 1888, and it hit the East Coast, paralyzing New York City. The same issue occurred with the warnings taking too long to reach people, but made worse by the fact that the weather office in New York had been closed over that weekend. So when we look at information which ranks the severity of blizzards over time in the US, the children's blizzard ranks as the fifth worst of all time, with the second worst being the storm of 1993. So some of you may be old enough to recall that storm. So what happened to Minnie? Much had been written about her exploits, but she preferred to shy away from the spotlight. And after the furor finally died down, she did go on to marry and have children. 
and then passed away at the age of 75 in 1943. A mosaic mural has been created of Minnie, which can be found at the Nebraska State Capitol. And I'd also like to share one final piece of information about Minnie. Now, we know that these sorts of tales from so long ago have the possibility of being distorted or embellished over time, and it's hard to know fact from fiction. And it appears that perhaps this is what happened to Minnie's story. Some years later, one of her students wrote the following account of what she recalled about that fateful day. The nearest house was not quite a quarter of a mile. We could have gone there with the storm at our backs. However, we were told to stay with the teacher and go to her boarding place, which was a half a mile away, and we had to face the storm. We were not tied together in any way, as has been erroneously stated so many times. So isn't that so interesting? So I guess we'll never really know whether they were all tied together, but I guess it does make for a very interesting story, doesn't it? Yeah, there you go. I thought that was just fascinating. Now, like other historical cases that I have covered, a song was written about Minnie, but as much as I tried to find the song, I just couldn't find it. In other episodes, I've been able to find really, really old recordings, but I was really disappointed that I couldn't find this song. So perhaps one of you in the US may have better luck than I did. The song is called 13 Were Saved, Nebraska's Fearless Maid. You can easily find the original sheet music of the song, which in itself is amazing, but not the actual song. So instead, I will finish with a song about Nebraska, where Minnie was from. And if you'd like to leave Minnie a message at the Find a Grave website, you can find her at Minnie May Freeman Penny. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Murder in the First Grade. The six-year-old schoolgirl was shot by her classmate. What happened? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote from Minnie herself. I feel that too much has been said of an act of simple duty. Notoriety I do not desire. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple. Reach the land of desert heat Where nothing grows from man to eat The wind that blows with blistering heat O'er all these plains is hard to beat We have no wheat, we have no oats We have no corn to feed our shoats Our chickens are so very poor they bake for crumbs outside the door. In Nebraska land, sweet Nebraska land, as on thy burning soil I stand. And look away across the plains and wonder why it never rains. Till Gabriel blows his trumpet sound and says the rain has gone around. We have no wheat, we have no oats, we cannot harvest them in boats. Our chickens are too poor to eat, 
They have no webs upon their feet. But with a smile upon my lips, I stand in mud up to my hips. Nebraska land, so fertile and rich, we think you are a honey. In Nebraska land, sweet Nebraska land, as on thy sodden soil I stand and look away across the plains and pray to God to stop the rains and look away across the plains and wonder why it never rains.